1: Our absent co-host Tasha Robinson is out robbing a Kansas farm as non-violently as possible, but she'll be with us next week if she gets away with it. So this week, we're finally taking the next picture show to the next level by becoming a true crime podcast. I've already dropped my other freelance commitments in anticipation of our rapid ascent of the Apple podcast rankings. Genevieve, what is this week's pairing?
2: I'm not sure this set of episodes is going to be the true crime crossover hit you anticipate, Scott, Uh, but it will bring us back to the roots of the genre. The new French film Saint-Omer by director Alice Jopp fictionalizes the true story of a Senegalese woman who admits to killing her 15-month-old child by leaving her on a beach and allowing the high tide to sweep her away. The crime is abhorrent on its face, but her testimony in open court tells a much more complicated and haunting story of extreme isolation and displacement. Job's commitment to giving the perpetrator's story a full airing recalls Truman Capote's seminal true crime book In Cold Blood and its 1967 film adaptation. Directed by Richard Brooks and shot in black and white by Conrad Hall, In Cold Blood recounts the murder of the Clutter family during a robbery attempt by two ex-cons in Kansas in 1959. As in Capote's book, the film goes into great detail about a notorious crime and the men who perpetrated it, wondering how four people wound up dead over $40 in cash.
1: So this week, we'll start with In Cold Blood, a film that influenced many other true crime films that followed, just as Capote's book became the controversial standard-bearer for its genre. Then next week, we'll bring in Santo Mare and see how much the context for a shocking murder affects our feelings about the crime, the perpetrator, and society at large. Please stay with us.
0: In the heart of America, in a small rural community, occurred a crime which shocked the entire nation. A book about this crime by Truman Capote became a worldwide bestseller. Now, a motion picture brings this book to the screen. In Cold Blood. An appalling and apparently senseless crime. Two apparently heartless young criminals. What is the reality behind the appearance?
1: About halfway through In Cold Blood, Richard Brooks's 1967 adaptation of Truman Capote's True Crime Book, two men puzzle over the inexplicable violence of two ex-cons attempting to rob a home in rural Kansas. Quote, Who would kill four people in cold blood for a radio, a pair of binoculars, and $40 in cash, one of them asks? These days, responds the other, take your pick on any crowded street. That's an extremely cynical response to the question, but In Cold Blood is partially about a permanent shift in mindset about the potential dangers in American life. When people talk about a perhaps mythologized American past, they talk about neighborhoods so safe that everyone leaves their doors unlocked, secure in the knowledge that nothing will happen to them. And surely the Clutter family felt the same way until the early morning hours of November 15th, 1959. They lived on a farm in Western Kansas with no proximity to any crowded street where they might get murdered for a radio, a pair of binoculars, and $40 in cash. Even when two men, Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, invaded their home seeking $10,000 from a wall safe that didn't exist, The Clutters offered no resistance and surely expected these invaders to take whatever they wanted and leave. Instead, Herb Clutter, his wife Bonnie, and their two teenage children at home, Nancy and Kenyon, were also murdered, most by a single gunshot blast to the head. In the annals of American crime, few cases have been as thoroughly discussed as The Clutters, and few books as thoroughly scrutinized as Capote's In Cold Blood, which continues to prompt discussion over its reporting and its storytelling style, it was called a quote unquote non novel, and the ethics of Capote's relationship with Perry Smith, who was understood as the trigger man that night. In fact, two films about Capote and the writing of Mid Cold Blood came out in consecutive years, with Philip Seymour Hoffman playing the author in 2005's Capote and Toby Jones assuming the role in 2006's Infamous. There's been so much meta discussion over the future implications of the case and Capote's involvement that it's oddly bracing to return to the 1967 film, which simply adapts the book straight up. Shooting in black and white with the legendary Conrad Hall as cinematographer, In Cold Blood is both a scrupulous docudrama and a boldly expressive work of art, proof that the two approaches don't have to be mutually exclusive. Robert Blake would have his own days in court on murder Charges Decades Later, but here he plays Perry Smith, a paroled convict who's on the lookout for his next score. Perry meets his buddy Dick Hickok, played by Scott Wilson, who has a tip on a can't-miss robbery scheme. Through an old cellmate, Dick has learned that the Clutter family runs a lucrative farm in Kansas and apparently keeps as much as $10,000 in cash in an office safe. The two plan what seems like an easy smash-and-grab job to break into the Clutter home with a shotgun and a knife, terrorize the Clutters into giving up the money, and leave into the Kansas night, perhaps hiding out in Mexico until the heat dies down. Everyone in the audience for In Cold Blood would have known what happens next. But in a remarkable structural move, Brooks doesn't detail the particulars of the event until much later in the film, after Perry and Dick have been caught, tried, and sentenced. Instead, the film follows them while they're fugitives on the lam, crisscrossing from Florida to Mexico and finally to Las Vegas, where they're arrested for violating parole, stealing a car, and passing a series of bad checks, since the $40 they got from the clutters could only take them so far. It takes a long time to find them. Dick's old cellmate proves to be the key, along with footprints left on the scene. But it only takes a few hours to scare them into a confession. Dick is the one who admits to the crime, with the proviso that Perry is the one who did all the killing. No matter, both men are sentenced to death and hanged one after another on April 14th, 1965. One of the benefits of Black and White is that it directs the eye more simply and purposefully than color, and can give a film like In Cold Blood the starkness it needs to support its tick-tock of factual events. Yet Black and White also has an expressive potential that Brooks and Conrad Hall exploit to unforgettable effect, particularly when it comes to Perry, the most intriguing and disturbed of the two men. Perry gets one of the all-time great introductions in film history on a darkened bus where you can see his infamous boot first, and then his face illuminated by a match. Then, late in the film, as he recalls a moment from his past with his father during a rainstorm outside his cell, the light and raindrops against the window are reflected on his face, making it look like tears. Fans of the great documentary about cinematography, Visions of Light, will surely remember that shot getting a lot of play. And then there's the question of the crime itself and its implications. At the time, the New York Times reported that the town of Holcomb, Kansas, where the clutters were from, had changed that, quote, neighborliness evaporated, and the natural order seemed suspended. Surely this would be true of the country at large, as implied in the film, when a detective talks about incidents like this one happening again. In Cold Blood is about that chilling potential, but it also seeks to understand how individuals could commit such atrocities. It makes the inexplicable explicable. We'll talk about it more after the break. With these, 192 dollars and 70 cents. Uh, would you like to have these wrapped and taken to your car? No, Larry, deliver them when the suit's ready.
0: Oh, no. Four silly dollars. We're awfully sorry. We'll have to come back some other time. <clears throat> um, I'd gladly give you a check, but then you hardly know me. Anyway, we're really grateful for your courtesy. If it's
1: a personal check, perhaps?
0: You're sure? positive. I wouldn't want the inconvenience.
1: Perfectly all right.
2: Which bank would you like? It's immaterial, I'm sure.
1: Thank
0: you. My driver's license, identity card, insurance card, country club.
1: Oops. She's a private number. <laughs> was that $192 and 70 cents? I'm curious to know what your first exposure was to In Cold Blood as a movie. As a book, as a movie, about the book, because <laughs> I think it kind of almost matters the order in which you encounter this material,
0: I had read the book, I think around the same time Capote came out, and I had never seen the movie before until watching it for this and yeah it's it's chilling stuff. I mean, I think both book and film, you know, it's been a while since I've read the book, but but it, the the film seemed very much in the same you know, mood, same sort of uh, you know, vibe to use the word that's used a lot too much these <laughs> days as the book. But I was I felt myself really disturbed by it in ways I wasn't necessarily expecting, even knowing what was going to happen going in. Like I remember the description company's description of the murder itself being, you know, really hard to read because it's it's clinical, but the details are so disturbing that, you know, any sort of distance from it is is not that much of a distance, actually, because you—it's you, not that hard to, to picture what he's talking about. And when the got to the part in the film where they're driving up to the house, I was actually kind of relieved that it did not depict the murders themselves. so it felt like it was sort of like okay to to glide past that because you know just that's that's fine. So when we cycled back around, I was really bracing myself for an awful stretch of, of film, and and that's exactly what I got. Not quality, of course, but in terms of uh, you know I've I found this. You know, as disturbing as any sort of fictionalized home invasion film I'd I'd ever seen, and and despite being you know quite non-sensationalistic and not even that graphic, I don't know. I I really enjoyed watching when joy again is not necessarily the right word, but I was I was really quite taken with the tone and wonder why it took me so long to get to it. I'm, I'm I'm really quite impressed by it.
2: I'm glad to hear you say that you were also uh, fooled by, uh, into thinking that we we would not see uh, the the murders happen because I had the exact same thoughts at, at that point in the film and I. I, I because this came out so close to the end of the Hayes code I even like wondered if it wasn't depicted because of that but then of course another part of the Hayes code like basically this whole movie would be against the Hayes code as far as like a quote-unquote sympathetic portrayal of uh, mm. you know of criminals not that this is exactly sympathetic to Perry and dick but you know it does certainly explore their interiority in such a way that is you know has become very much associated with the true crime genre, which is—I'll just put it out there—not a genre that I am particularly enjoy or am particularly well well versed in. Uh, particularly uh, true crime about violent crime. It is something that. I don't enjoy being in the sort of emotional headspace that that it it requires. So needless to say, I I, I had not seen this movie before either, Keith, and my first exposure, and honestly, my only exposure to it up to this point had been Capote, which I did see when it came out. It did not lead me to the book itself uh, because of aforementioned true crime aversion, Uh, but it certainly, you know, and and I had been aware of the book before then and sort of its, its place in the the literary canon and, and what it did you know as a as an English major you know and a, a journalism student you know you can't not at least know what uh, was sort of important and informative about that book but I just you know I never had to read it so I never did but as far as you know finally seeing the movie itself it's a it's a gap I'm glad I've had filled. I don't think I would ever return to this film willingly. It's just a you know, as Keith said, a, an eerie experience, uh, a extremely well executed eerie experience. And like, I don't dislike this film. I think it sets a very high standard of, of filmmaking. And, and I appreciate that about it. And it was compelling from beginning to end, even if I didn't necessarily enjoy watching it. So uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of rambly and long winded and trying to excuse my own ignorance about <laughs> In Cold Blood a little, but that's that's my experience.
1: Yeah. So I saw this first as a film, but it was very hard to see, which was may, may have been why you couldn't see it, Keith, uh, for mm. a while, because I, I had heard of it. I'd known of its reputation, was interested in it. And I just remember it being one of those movies that just would never come out on video. And I, I feel like I had some memory of, of taping it off of cable when it came on. And the, the image that had stuck with me, the longest um, was the very end of the movie. Just the fact that it, it ends with the the hanging and then that's the end of the movie. It was oh. like, it, that is an incredible, still remains an extraordinarily powerful ending and, and also an almost a, a good justification for the era in which all of the credits were at the beginning of the film and, and you have nothing at the end. It's just like, that's, that's it. See you later, you know, (laughs) uh, uh, tip your waiter or whatever. You're just out after that. And then I got back to the, um, I must've read pieces of the Capote in college, but I, I, I did, um, go back to the book, uh, when these films about Capote were coming out and it's just such an incredible foundational, Piece of writing, it's you know. I mean, I think it's almost worth. I mean, it's you know, it does go into graphic detail, but but it's just it is one of those things like that just sort of changed the game in terms of journalism, in terms of like the kind of prose style that you could that you you know, and psychological insight that you could kind of put into this kind of true storytelling. It just it, it was really kind of pushing that envelope, and it gets us to a place. And the film does this too of you know really trying to answer a question that seems impossible to answer which is like how did the how could this happen like h- how could this robbery this attempted robbery in, in which there really seems to be no resistance at all and with four people dead you know in, in the way that they were they were killed it's just it's so shocking and inexplicable and, and for the film to go into the detail the and the book to go in the detail that it goes into psychologically is um it's just really it, it, fascinating and invaluable. i think it, it you know i think it's it's one of those things where we don't ask those questions enough. And I guess that, that's what this pairing is all about, is that we do ask, ask those questions, That we is that we have to go, is that we should try, at least attempt to go beyond the crime itself.
2: I don't know how much I, I buy that we don't ask that question enough. Like, isn't that just like kind of, what the true crime genre and and serial killer movies are are basically like predicated on like getting bond- the mind of a killer like y- they're know?
1: predicated on me- methodology in my opinion right mm. i mean if you watch like seven or zodiac these like the fincher movies or i mean it's all about kind of like you know or silence of the lambs it's or, or it's kind of about like what are their techniques you know what are they what what is their what is their particular unknowable psychological genius it doesn't it, it's not really about finding out that it's a reaction to kind of some you know psychological scar you know something that's more human I mean I think I think a lot of the, these a lot of true crime movies certainly serial killer movies are not necessarily interested I don't know if humanize is the right word but they almost are interested in, in separating these killers from the human race entirely of making them seem like these diabolical creatures who really have no connection at all to, to other, other actual people, in my opinion, I, yeah. I, I, but maybe you're right. I mean, I, maybe yeah,
2: I, I'm just, I'm not well versed enough in the genre. I feel to like argue with you <laughs> about that or like, or like bring examples just, just like my, because I guess like part of my aversion to a lot of this genre is, is sort of the the centering of the criminals, you know, maybe at the expense of the the victims side of it, or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. th- this is a conversation that came up uh, recently with Netflix's Dahmer. And I think, you know, uh, kind of maybe like American crime story, the Gianni Versace season is another one that like kind of, you know, really spent a lot of time digging into the, you know, the scarred psychology of, of, of the of these criminals. And I think there's just something that feels a little like sorted to me about that and maybe that is like where my aversion comes from um i, I realize it's very like tender-hearted of me
1: no, I think you're right i mean it's it's a big issue because i mean it, you know and then you, you think about all of the shootings and stuff school shootings things like mm-hmm. that that we get and 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 racially motivated shootings i mean a lot of that is uh, you know the appeal of that to the to the perpetrators is often that they become mythologize themselves you know and 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 uh and you know their exploits are you know if not celebrated then then certainly s- scrutinized and they're heard in their in their twisted way uh by by drawing attention uh and drawing attention away from from the people who died who we don't necessarily who whose lives we don't know i mean we don't know anything about the clutters really we know a few things about the clutters from this movie but we we we'd certainly learn a whole lot more about Perry and Dick and, and um, wh- where they're coming from. So, so that, that point is certainly taken. I think there's just something about the nature of this crime that makes it unusual to sort of try to find reasons, you know, and I think that's going to be true of Santo Omer as well. When we get, we, we get to that when it's just like, you know, there's a temptation of just like leaving it at that. It's just so awful. It's just so, it's so impossible to even fathom uh, violence, the 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 violence the, the, that's this you know unnecessary and horrifying and seemingly without an explanation and actually try to try to explain it try to get, get fit, put it in some sort of context and it's something I think that the film you know in Cold Blood in the book do quite well and and um it just it, it feels like both really have a pretty grand vision I guess of of uh, the the kind of goes you know it's interesting how it's how in Cold Blood is both highly detailed and personal and, and full of psychological insight but also seems to try to be taking the mood of the country and and trying to understand figure out project out from this case and and see how what it says about society at large and what people's fears are and how and how things have changed um, really kind of gauge the significance of it as well i think i think it's a very busy film and you know it's it's very focused but it's got a lot it's got a lot of vision to it so there is more about the clutters in the book
0: and per in an interview with Richard Brooks's director Douglas K. Daniel, that's on the Criterion Blu-ray. Uh, Capote liked the film, but did miss that element. It felt like it was unbalanced because of it. So maybe that's kind of like the I don't want to say like the original sin of true true crime, but but maybe this is like kind of an early example of what you're yeah. talking about, Jennifer. I think it's important to draw a distinction though between what this film and and the book do and a lot of other true crime stuff, which which is can be kind of a corruption of the same impulses. And, and in cold blood isn't necessarily to blame for, you know, we looked up this murder on Wikipedia and man, was it messed up the yeah. uh, podcasts <laughs> oh, that are God. out there, you know. Um, uh, not that you're, you're quitting the two, but I but I do I, but I, I do think it's worth at least at least noting that as well. I mean it is uncomfortable to be in these guys' head. And it is not, you want to think of them as just Monsters and what they and they are and what they do is is monstrous, but it's not. They're not monsters twenty four seven, and that's part of what makes them so disturbing. Yeah, um, I, I I like that the whole like sequence where they're just collect, collecting uh, bottles. bottles with the yeah. a, with the people they meet along the road, and they're just having a, a grand old time. It's like you seem like nice guys, we, we we've seen we haven't actually seen the murder at this point, but we've seen how awful they are. But we know better. But yet in that moment. There, there they are um i actually in some ways i find scott wilson's performance as dick hickok it may be a little less showy than than blake's performance but i find it just more disturbing because that the character is so charming
2: yeah i mean i was uh, you already brought up the bottle uh scene which was one that stuck out to me alongside the uh the scene in the suit store uh mm-hmm. where uh, uh where dick scams a, a wardrobe uh, and, and passes a, a bad check and he's so charismatic there like that's the you know and it's it's highlighting the the stark difference between the two of them as Perry like glowers in the corner but it also like you say Keith like it is disturbing to feel like drawn to someone who we know is a killer and is criminal and who, who has like already at this point in the film like said horrible things and done horrible things we just haven't as you said seen it yet so, I think those scenes that do humanize the monsters, they are compelling. And like, I think that like they're an example of why true crime is so so popular now because it is interesting and compelling to see, you know, someone that you perceive as an inhuman appeal to your human instincts in that way. So, while being, I guess, sort of, skeptical or unsettled by those scenes i also just really enjoyed them <laughs> because you're supposed to i mm-hmm. think
1: dick just strikes me as a as a confidence man mm-hmm. i mean really there's i mean those sequences where they're where they're where he's out passing bad checks i mean for one just just the scene with the perry's change of wardrobe at all is just really to set him up as a plausible gentleman right i mean you know because because the way he's dressed is not gonna get them anywhere but if he can be somebody who's a little bit more like dick and and has have the appearance of someone whose checks are good (laughs) then then maybe they can get somewhere but yeah i mean it's fascinating all the stuff with them in mexico is really interesting you know and the film just makes so many cool choices i mean like i I mentioned of course the 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 big structural choice with the with the um killing but what i like too is like like the uh, the cut we get from them going to vegas to them just going right to jail like there's not even like none of that is, like there's just nothing you, you think there's going to be some kind of connective tissue there where where someone pulls them over and they're going to be arrested and they're going to be you know taken to uh, jail but it's like all that stuff is kind of shorn away and you just get a cut because you know this is coming and th- there you are um, they don't get any further than, than that um, I, you know it's a good it's it's, it's a history choice a, a film that's, that's full of them Brooks
0: makes a lot of purposeful cuts like that, too. There's an early scene early on where, where there's kind of like rhymes between what the characters are saying that cuts to another character and, and, you know, where it kind of picks up where it left off, either verbally or action-wise. I mean, it is, it is a really efficient film in, in the way it, it's told.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's so many just little details. I'm sure I missed dozens of them. But like right from the like that very famous first shot of the bottom of his shoe with the the cat's paw, you know, circles on it to you know perry's first reaction to the nuns uh making a phone call at the train station and like you know uh, <laughs> how that sort of lays the groundwork for uh his feelings about nuns that that we, that we learn later like there's just there's just lots of very cool visual cues woven in
1: yeah which kind of brings me to my next question which is about the decision to shoot the film in black and white and i, I kind of got into this a little bit in the keynote but but i think that Black and White has that dual purpose in this movie, in which I think this is a a docudrama. This is a film that is trying to take the 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 facts and the details that were laid out in in Capote's book and present them is is clearly to the audience as possible. But then, but then we also get Conrad Hall doing Conrad Hall stuff, you know, do it Rembrandt and the whole thing up. And <laughs> I mean, he's got Perry's introduction, of course, the the tears and it, I mean, all that stuff is so incredible and it's it's interesting to see a movie that doesn't have an either or approach to how it's shot like it's not either you know mm-hmm. it doesn't choose between being a sort of a sort of stark just the facts you know mm-hmm. the plain jane black and white docudrama and being a wildly expressive n- noir inflected <laughs> you know uh uh crime drama it's 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 both
0: yeah, it, feel, it feels like the, the the sort of you know, noir style kind of pops it at some really surprising uh, moments. I, I I mean, I love the way this film looks. It's, it's re- remarkable and like sort of the, the starkness of of, uh, of the Kansas plains has never really been so haunting. The sound design also plays a role, especially during that killing sequence of you know the howling wind outside. You can really get a sense of the of the remoteness and desolateness of, of this place where the killings happen.
2: I mean, the score is a huge part of that expressiveness mm-hmm. to the Quincy Jones yeah. score, which it, like right from the first time, it, you know, it came out. I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, like I, I mean, I I, knew it was Quincy Jones, because as you already noted, the credits are, are right right up front. But just the, the jangliness of it, the aggressiveness of it, you know, the unsettlingness of it, I think it just... Works really well in tandem with the the cinematography to create this sort of
0: unreal realism. This was the same year that uh, Jones scored in The Heat of the Night, and and like in the middle of like Conrad Hall's, uh, you know, amazing you know streak between this and 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 uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It really was finding the people at the very uh, height of their abilities to work on this film, wasn't it?
1: I mean, but like I mean, you look at Conrad Hall, though it's like he shot that movie but then i mean he ended his career with mm-hmm. uh the the two San Mendes films uh american beauty and road to perdition and however whatever your feelings about those movies i mean the photography is super persuasive mm-hmm. in those films like so he could work in color just as strikingly as he could in black and white I mean, he was a true artist and it just you know and yeah i just i did i think it is a very strong choice he makes a lot of strong choices and then the choice to use that that quincy jones score ha- is very is pretty unusual um and again not not anything you would expect because it's so un. it's it, it kind of gives you that s- it's unnerving it's not it's not orderly <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's 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 a little bit uh, uh puts you on edge a bit and um and i, it, I think to a very eff- effective degree but but um, it's a, kind of an early indication that this is not going to be, um, you know, like some procedural you would see on television. This is going to be something a lot, a lot more um, artful and a lot uh, edgier. It's kind of the cinematic equivalent of the nonfiction novel,
0: right? It, it is, you know, here are the here are the facts, but it's presented artfully, and then here is this, you know, completely. Expressive element that is, uh, you know, removed from from what you would read in a police ledger, um, you know, by 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 a million degrees.
2: The use of flashbacks—it feels like, a, you know, a very clear translation of that to sort of filmic language. And, and the the flashbacks here to to Perry's childhood, like, they are shot a little. Differently, I I, I think, or, or they they have a they have more of that like unreal feel to them. Just they're they're a little starker, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'd have to go back and like track this, but it feels like they get more so uh, over the course of the film. Um, but maybe I'm just thinking of the, sort of the final. I don't even know if you call, I mean, I guess technically it's a flashback, but sort of Perry's final vision of, of his father with, with the shotgun, uh, you know, like that is the way that is filmed is like, I mean, it's a, it's a dream, you know, it's a nightmare.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the, the film had already established his father in a much more, you know, straightforward mm-hmm. way with, with the, with sort of the detectives just having a discussion with him right. and getting a sense of him. And then, and then, and then, um, I don't know if the, our sense of him is undermined necessarily, because I think I think I think we probably get a pretty bad feeling from him in that in that scene. But you're right in that the, in that the style does change and, and the editing becomes a little a little more jittery. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, and, and this kind of leads to a, a broader question, which is you know what what we think of the structure of the film because you do have these you have flashbacks and you also have like these kind of like jarring nightmare sequences and then you have um you know that the major structural decision to put the um depiction of the crime itself towards the end what what does that what does that do for you like what does that do for the film to both to to not have it to not have it happen when we expect it to happen and then to see it later what what does that uh do for the movie
2: well, to return to what Keith was saying earlier about how, you know, the book includes, you know, more of of the victims, sort of one of the things I was keying into, and and I guess enjoying uh, in the first part of the film, was sort of the cutting back and forth uh, between Perry and Dick and, and the Clutters, uh, you know, as they sort of like, got closer and closer to each other, you know, like watching this collision course play out. And then as we've established, it changes, you know, and we, we lose the clutters and, and, until the end. And it's hard to say because, like, maintaining that approach through the whole film might have gotten repetitive or, I, you know, I, 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 I can't say it, it would have been better. But it does, I think, kind of speak to the idea that the film loses the clutters, loses the victim's story in favor of exploring the the criminals and, and diving deep into them. And it does so very well. But the, the murder is going to be at the end anyway. <laughs> I guess I just like I, I guess I would have liked to have had the clutters be continued to be interwoven throughout the entirety of the film instead of like coming back at the end and we know a little bit about them uh particularly the the daughter who like Mm, she's she's,
1: so that was so heartbreaking she she seems
2: like she seems like a great gal you know really does (laughs) um and like i think like the their deaths because we have just spent the last our, like diving deep into, especially Perry's psyche and, you know, these sort of nightmare visions of his past. When we do see these deaths, it feels like we're experiencing them just as he's experiencing them, not as the clutters are experiencing them. And that is honestly off putting to me. But I do think it probably makes for a more interesting film structurally than if it had just like kind of continued on that back and forth pattern
1: you know one thing i would say now that i think about it though about the structure is that if i if i think if we see things happen in in chronology from that point if we see the the murder mm-hmm. uh, the, the murders explicitly and then we continue with them as uh, when they're on the lam and we continue to get to know them et cetera, that it kind of would he would tip a bal- tip the balance of the film a little much, and it would make it seem, you know I think I think having it and it, it, it would humanize them to too great an extent in in a way because we would start to forget what they've done yeah <laughs> you know we'd what also I mean? lose like, the it,
2: whole investigation <laughs> you, yeah, you know would, so, so just like practically speaking like I, I I get why you know the clutters need to be shuffled to the side but like yeah you know like there were there were two other clutter kids what about this this community you know we kind of hear about how the community was, was affected but we don't really see it you know um yeah and that's another movie
1: i think the film at least it gets to remind us what they've done in a really explicit in really explicit terms and i think we kind of need that just to make sure that it all registers you know that we take the full we we we, we kind of understand them them in the situation in, in full um and so I so so I kind of appreciated that aspect of it. Rather than it being a being an arc to where, you know, we see the crime and then we come to understand them and then we come to kind of like yeah. to see them in death row and see what death row is like and feel the, you know, and feel their dread as they're awaiting their sentencing and all and 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 finally getting getting hanged. I mean all that stuff is like, you know, I think would perhaps again tilt the balance too much in their favor and i don't think the film really wants to do that so so much as kind of give give some insight into into who these men are
0: yeah i think it's a smart choice because as you say you know if if we were to see the murders and then kind of get things like the bottle collecting scene and things like that it, it would it fades a little bit too far in the background i think i think you kind of need that wake up uh as to who these people really are and then and then you get this tremendously you know uh I don't, I'm trying for the right word. Not empathetic, not sympathetic, but but just this, this just immersive um, section with them on on death row, mm-hmm. and 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 the the uh, the horrors of it. I mean, I mean, it was very much you know Brooks apparently very much wanted to make an anti-capital punishment yeah. uh, film, and and I, I think it, I I don't think it's it turns into a tract or anything, but certainly those, that sentiment is not hard to not hard to pick up.
1: Yeah, Yeah. but it's also like this is this is how it is. Yeah, (laughs) you know this is this is this is how this is how people live. This is what they can do when they're on death row. This is what they can't do. Um, this is where this is the warehouse where the penalty is carried out. This is what it sounds like. You know, this is what the yard looks like. Leading there, it's like it it it. You know, it it doesn't feel like it it doesn't editorialize in that sense. In the sense, I mean, it is it is and it, it hides its editorializing by just giving you. Something I think approximating the truth.
2: I mean, the bathroom thing is pretty humanizing, I think, and and I mean, I I, I also am anti-capital punishment. Like, I'm glad it's there, you, you know. Right, um, right, But I I think like the inc-
1: everybody does it. Yeah
2: <laughs> the in, the inclusion of that is as like Perry's sort of last not last act, last plea, I guess, is, you know, it's, it's, it's affecting, but I think it also does engender a lot of sympathy for, for Perry in particular as he goes out.
1: Yeah, that's true. And it does, it it is a pretty good argument, you know, against, I mean, in terms of the, it's, it's a pretty, doesn't lend a lot of dignity to the whole, to the process for the, for this to be, you know th- that kind of violence. I mean, that was that was always the thing about lethal injection. That was that's been that's so fascinating. Is 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 this process that to observers looks peaceful is in fact the most violent thing imaginable. Mm-hmm. We just don't. We just can't see it. Uh, we can't see that 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 what the uh, torment the, the torments that are happening, and it, it makes us feel better about the process while concealing the truth of what it actually is. I guess that hanging does not do that. We can, we definitely can can uh, <laughs> be aware of all those things. Although the um, heartbeat
2: thing really, t- really took me aback. Like the, you know, like the neck breaks and then the heart beats for minutes afterwards. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know enough about the process, nor do I really want to to investigate it. But that kind of took me aback as far as it, the humaneness, I guess, of it.
1: Okay, so this film is full of you know, some pretty striking moments. I just was were, was wondering, you know, what some of the, if there were any real standout moments from the film for you that you may have trouble forgetting.
0: I think the daughter talking about how she's going to study art and music. I don't know that for some reason that just really, you know, drove home for me the, the life that was cut short by those murders. And, and that was as hot, ha- you know, the most haunting moment in the film for me.
2: A moment that stood out for me, though, not necessarily in a, good way was the the courtroom scene and particularly like the attorneys like bible quoting closing arguments not because like it wasn't well done although i think like that speech was definitely more on the the corny side of, of things but it drove home for me something that I had like very much misunderstood about this film before seeing it which is that I was under the impression that this was mainly a courtroom drama (laughs) like it was Mm. it was on AFI's like list of the best courtroom dramas like it, it shows up on lists like that often and I mean obviously it's spoken of first as a like a true crime film but like that is like my awareness of this film was very like wrapped up in uh, understanding it as a, as a courtroom movie. And there's only one scene in a courtroom. <laughs> so I, I don't know where the signals got mixed there, but am, am, I, am I missing something as far as like that scene or it's importance in the film as a whole?
1: No, yeah. no, I mean, it's uh, a, <laughs> I mean, I think you almost, it's kind of a thing where you have to check that particular box, but I, I don't, I don't know, you know, in terms of the film's overall agenda, if it, if it was, You know, you rank it all that far towards the top. Yeah. Um, Well,
2: I mean, also just by virtue of this pairing, I I, I kind of assumed that because, uh, spoilers, Mare takes place almost entirely in a courtroom, or or the vast majority of it takes place in a courtroom. So, I was like expecting that to be a a major link here, and uh, it's not, really
1: yeah i was happy to see it kind of being I, I happy to have this one as open opened up as possible because it does have it does take us to some striking places and i think the, the standout for me is all the stuff at, in death row um mm-hmm. you know i mean of course the, there's the famous shot and the, it's famous for good reason but i think what's sticking to me now is all the stuff about the action about the warehouse about the yard uh you know about that kind of lonely march from death row to you know the sort of end of the line where we see that we see the the nicest boy in kansas who has had his uh you know has had his date pushed back and pushed back and finally he goes and he goes before perry and dick do and um and the film shows him crossing the yard which is lit in that very conrad hall you know film noir way and it's and um and then you know we we know that he's not gonna come back and and that and that him him going away and 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 never returning is just something that that is very strongly in perry's mind for one and and um it's something that's hard to shake and and then of course i just think the the end of the film has got so much integrity i mean to end on a on on a hanging, and then that's the end of the film. It's just so it's chilling, and and again the way it's photographed is, is so graphically striking. And uh, so so I think that that all, those those elements stand out to me when I think about this movie. Um, yeah, he just he, Conrad Hall just shoots the hell out of it. It's amazing. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion. Uh, maybe some of your favorite Conrad Hall images <laughs> and anything else in the world of film. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback. In our last set of episodes on the killer dolls of Child's Play and Megan... We got this great email from a listener who offers a unique interpretation of the film. Keith, do you want to read this one for us?
0: I would. Mystic Question writes, longtime listener, first time commenter. As I share Genevieve's aversion to jump scares and horror themed gore, I had never watched Child's Play until last week. As a parent who has struggled financially in the past, I read the quote, Reflections of the Anxiety of the Error, unquote, much differently than the group. It seemed to me to be less of a movie about the child or the doll and more about the horrors of single parenting. The necessary obsequiousness. ...toward the department store manager to keep your meager earnings, arriving at your home to find your bestie slash babysitter dead, your child taken from your doing the best you can home, and forcibly placed in a sterile environment, bringing something that was supposed to be good but turned out to be a Santeria-influenced serial killer into your home, what parent doesn't have some of these fears... Yeah, that that's really good. That is that's, that's, um, that's a detail that is played up a lot in the, in in the film, and I guess we really did not talk about it, but but uh, just how vulnerable the protagonist is as a single parent.
2: Yeah, we got into sort of the the parenting element more more with Megan. I I did. As the child of a of a single parent, I did think about this while watching Child's Play. I don't know why I didn't bring it up during the discussion, but I so I appreciate uh, Mystic Question uh, uh, who didn't give their their name, uh, but uh, wrote this very good letter. So I appreciate them raising it now. I also really like the phrase horror themed gore to <laughs> to explain <laughs> my aversion, and I'm going to steal it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is like yeah, that's such a. Uh interesting rhetorical <laughs> uh a response to the genre uh yeah i i think I, I almost feel like we got into this did we did we just a little bit just all, all these these uh, i mean the fact that she can't have, that this kid yeah. needs this thing or wants this thing and yeah. she wants to do something for him and she she can and she and she has to she has to take this shift on his on his birthday you know and she ends up having to buy buy this doll from a pretty shady customer i mean uh, yeah, i mean the other stuff it, the other stuff I didn't in terms of the vulnerability of her family of, of the two of them is something maybe that we, that, that mm-hmm. we didn't address that we, we should have though, for sure. Um, you know, I mean, not just finding the babysitter dead, but just the fact that you are really are living hand to mouth, which is very difficult when you have a, when you have a child and, and cause you're right, you know, it's one thing for an adult to be on the precipice like that. But when you're talking, when you have a, a kid too, who has certain, expectations and and wants and and vulnerabilities uh himself then um it's a whole different story
2: i will say though i think the sort of socioeconomic part of that vulnerability is fairly muted by the film itself like of, of course you know there is the the interaction with with her manager but like what we see on the screen like you know, doing the best you can uh, <laughs> uh, home is, is a pretty nice home in a very nice building in, in, in Chicago. And, But more so than that, because that can just kind of be chalked up to Hollywood filmmaking stuff... But more so than that, like the film does take these digressions to these blighted areas on the South Side and, you know, uh, much more tenuous socioeconomic circumstances by comparison to what, what that family is experiencing. So I think maybe that part of her vulnerability doesn't come out quite as strong. And then as far as her being like a single mother the detective figure kind of gets slotted in like I'm thankful the film didn't like try to put any sort of like romance between them but it does sort of like slot him in as a you know a protector or, you know not quite a surrogate father fig- figure but a male protector you know it gets him in there pretty early on in terms of that it's going to happen after the credits <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I, kiss the sequels, kiss I don't kiss,
1: th- kiss. <laughs> uh, I don't believe it happens in the sequel um, Yeah, right. but I, I, I will say though that, that I mean just one detail of the film that I did appreciate was the fact that it identifies so specifically what she can afford. The fact that she can afford the tools the tools chucky's tools but not chucky <laughs> chucky's too expensive um or the good guy doll tools anyway and chucky i guess would be the name of the doll it's like frankenstein's monster it's not, no it's not it's uh, he's, a, he's a good guy doll he's not chucky um anyway uh uh but but uh you know it, it's one of those things that the film didn't have to do uh but does so uh, uh good on child's play a, a classic film apparently <laughs> classic film how did it happen? We, we, uh, we declared
0: it classic it's classic now
1: i know i mean, I just—it's just you know—I w- my mind would have been blown. Eighties me would have been wow. This is going to be on a podcast someday, <laughs> <laughs> not knowing what a podcast is. Um, so we also got uh, an interesting letter uh, from our about our glass onion discussion uh, on r- issues of race, particularly as they refer to Leslie Odom Jr.'s character Lionel, who works as the head scientist for Miles Braun, the billionaire visionary played by Edward Norton. Genevieve.
2: Will writes, I really enjoyed your discussion of Glass Onion, but thought your analysis missed some important points by leaving out the topic of race, specifically Lionel's characterization and the ending. Lionel's blackness is never commented on, but definitely impacts how he fits in with the rest of the group. As you mentioned, he seems to be the most talented one, with the exception of Andy. As a black man working in a mostly white field, especially working for Miles, he's probably had to toe the line many times before. His choice aside with Miles and his betrayal of Andy both felt a little more understandable and a little more painful as a result. And at the end, when Benoit specifically tells Andy that he and the law can't help her anymore and implicitly encourages her to take matters into her own hands, it felt impossible to ignore the fact that he was doing so to a black woman. I thought this use of race nicely added complexity to the story without overwhelming it. Miles certainly abused and took advantage of many people, but it seemed like no coincidence that a black woman ended up being the person who got hurt the most. Yeah, good point, Will. (laughs) (laughs) I mean and, and this sort of feels a, a little like a continuation of the uh first knives out film and and anna de armis's character who is obviously not black but but is an immigrant and is in a similarly uh or occupies a sort of a different part of the power structure in in this family and the society so it i do not think that 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 this was an accident on ryan johnson's part uh, making those two characters black and having them interact in that way particularly at the end of the film
1: yeah i was i was I'm just kind of pleased to, to see some attention on, on Lionel as a, as a character in, in some reflection on, on mm-hmm. his sort of purpose in the movie, because I think you could just see, well, he's got Ryan Johnson has assembled this cast of, you know, fun actors, you know, in, in, yeah. who, you know, in, in a whodunit. And, and, um, you know, they're all just sort of pieces of this puzzle. Um, you don't necessarily, it's good to kind of think um, that, um th- to think about what will has uh, th- thought about here that uh that there, there's intentionality to this to this uh, character and and um and uh there's a reason um you know wh- why he's cast um leslie Odom jr and why he's cast janelle Monet. so we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll grapple with another shocking true crime in Alice Jop's Saint-Omer. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, if you're going to commit a bloody crime, pick out more generic boots.